Good morning. We do get to call out to his name. I love that. Uh, my name is Luke. I serve in the leadership team here at Renewal Church of Chicago, and it is a privilege every Sunday to be with you guys, to worship with you guys, to spend some time in the Word of God with you all, um, it, it, to be the church, frankly, right? To, to be and live as the church in this great city of Chicago. Um, we are in the middle of a three-week series right now, uh, a Psalms summer series. Uh, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at, uh, Pastor D showed us Psalm 1 and how it is a picture of uh, rootedness in God. Last week, Tony looked at uh, Psalm 51 with us and showed us how it is a picture of confession to God. Today, we're going to look at another one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23, and how it is a picture of guidance from God, right? Uh, before we get into all that, I wanted to share a quick story. Uh, my, my wife and I, we were... Um, 2000, in 2000, we were married. 2003, we had been married three years, and we were wanting a vacation, not because we had been married for three years. We wanted to go on vacation together, not apart. And, you know, we had, we had honeymooned and hadn't done much of by way of vacation until uh, three years later. And we, at the time, we were living in Mexico City, Mexico, and, and we had heard about some of the coastal villages and resort towns, and we thought, let's, let's do a vacation. Let's Let's figure this out. Well, the internet in 2003 wasn't quite what the internet is now, but nevertheless, we started researching online where's a good place to, where's a good place to go, where's a good nice beach resort, and we landed on this thing. We're like, this is this is it. This is what we wanted. And I dug around and found the original website from 2002, and I want to read you the description this morning. The copy read, "White sands." Tropical sea life in crystal clear waters, the soothing sound of waves breaking on the point. Waken to surf and bird song, finish the day with spectacular glowing sunsets. Treat yourself to the experience of a true tropical getaway. And our seaside restaurant is at one of the most romantic spots in the world. Commanding, sweeping, 280 degree views of the beautiful bay. This is it. This is where we want to go, right? This is what we want to do. This is, this is what we want to see. An online review said TripAdvisor was like brand new at that time. And, and so there were like two reviews on the whole website. This is one of them. It said, a wonderful place to escape and retreat. Beautiful accommodations within a beach. Paradise. Yes. Vacation. It's happening. This is what we want. And uh, we, we looked at the photos. One of them was a photo of palms and uh, a, like a tropical hut right on the beach. I, I don't know if we have those photos here. Uh, Chris, you can give us a the, Yes, right on this bay. It's actually a famous bay. King's Point is, uh, King's Reef, pardon me, is out there. Beautiful. And we were like, this is where we want to go. And then we got there and we saw our room, which was like this. Circa 1968 bedspreads, polyester, it was awesome. They didn't photograph the other side of the room because there was no door. This is a hut on the beach. Uh, the website promised uh, a suites complete with your own bathroom and veranda. This was a hut next to another jungle hut with a bathroom. This is also known as an outhouse, if you haven't heard of this, right? So the, the, suffice to say, some of the descriptions were not 
what we were expecting. And then we were promised wildlife, tropical fish, tropical birds, and this is the first wildlife we actually encountered. Yes, that is an actual photograph. If, if you're listening to the podcast right now, imagine like a spider crossed with something from Ridley Scott's Alien and then multiply it by like a factor of 10 and you know what we're looking at on the slide right now. You can go ahead and move past that so we don't have to be distracted by it. This was on the outhouse bathroom wall when we walked in, crawling around. Um, listen, all of us have been there, right? We've all read the marketing copy and then used the actual product, and there's a big gap. There's something, there's a big difference between the two things. All of us, frankly, men and women, singles and married, Christians and non-Christians, and every other kind of subdivision of people in this room, all of us have looked to the experts for guidance, tried to make a good decision, and only wound up in failure, right? All of us, in one way or another, are in search of guidance. Isn't that true? All of us need guidance. Now listen, uh, we have dreams, we have desires, we have questions, we have ambitions, we have concerns, we have doubts, and, and we want guidance. We're searching for guidance. I think this is a universal experience that people go through. We require guidance. Psalm 23 is probably the most famous of all of the Psalms. If you are uh, a Christian, uh, a believing Christian, or if you have grown up in and around church, you undoubtedly have heard Psalm 23. Um, if, even if you are not a believing Christian, if you're just kind of on the periphery, you probably have heard Psalm 23, at least the first couple of verses. It's probably been mailed to you on a greeting card from your grandma or something. I mean, Psalm 23 is really, really famous. And listen, Psalm 23, more than anything else, is this. It is a picture of guidance. It is a picture of what we are all after, a steady hand at the wheel <laughs> guiding us. This, this perfect guidance, this, this guidance that is beautiful, that is stunning, and this guidance that also is sustaining in difficult times. Let's read it. Let's stand to read Psalm 23. Stand if you're able. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, this is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. Psalm 23 is a song of God's guidance. Um, 
In each of the Psalms that we've looked at, Psalm 1, Psalm 51, Psalm 23 today, in each of these Psalms, we learn something about the person, the psalmist themselves, the person singing the song or writing the poem or saying the prayer, right? We learn something about the person who trusts in God. But more importantly, we learn something about the God who is trustworthy. Psalm 23 is no different. We learn about this God, the, the one true God, the God of the Bible, and we learn something about him. And, and, and the psalmist utilizes, like all good songwriters do, he utilizes metaphors, right? He utilizes metaphors to describe God. You know, Shakespeare utilized metaphors. He didn't just say, you're great. No, no, no. What did he say? He said, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Right? The psalmist does the same thing. And in this psalm, we have four metaphors. Two are about God, and two are about life. Two are about God. God is shepherd who protects his people. God is host who gives generously to his guests. Did you see that, perhaps, when we read it? And we have two other metaphors about life. Life can be good. (laughs) It can be pleasant. It can be like green pastures and still waters. And life, frankly, can be dark. It can be like the valley of death's shadow. Right? Two Metaphors about God, two metaphors about life, all in this one great psalm. And all of it tells us something about God. It tells us that this God, this God is committed to his people. This God is wholly committed to his people. Through thick and thin and good times and bad, this God, the one true God, is committed to his people. God is shepherd for his sheep. God is hosts, host to his guests. Life as green, pastures, and life as dark valley, all in one psalm. Now, this is a lot, I got to admit, whenever I, um, a normal pastor kind of thing, whenever we're studying and, and taking notes for this kind of a teaching, you know, I, I usually am shooting for something like 2,500 words of notes. And when I looked at this psalm, and I got done, and I finished the last sentence, and I looked at the number of words, it was 4,000 words. Okay, so fair warning, I'm going to do my best to stay in the lane. But that, the reason I mention that is because this psalm is so rich that without trying, we can take 4,000 words of notes on it. Why? Because we are in search of guidance, and it has a picture of what that looks like. This is what we are after. This is what you are after, Christian or non-Christian. This is what you want, the kind of guidance that leads to beauty and the kind of guidance that is sufficient in darkness. That's our two points. I'm starting with the points, right? Point one, (laughs) guidance that leads to beauty. Point two, Guidance that is sufficient in darkness. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like what you want? That's the picture in this psalm. First, guidance that leads to beauty. The psalmist paints a picture of beauty and rest and peace. It's, uh, it sounds incredible. Frankly, it sounds kind of like the copy that I read about the beach resort that we went to. Um, he starts out right out of the gate. What does the psalmist say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or if we were rephrasing that, you might, be, you might could say, if God, if God is my God, then I have it all, right? Or you could phrase it interrogatively. You could say, if God himself cares for me, what could I possibly lack? 
That is the psalmist's bold opening statement. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he continues, how does he continue? He says, God leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then, and then he pushes the metaphor to its extreme. He says, he restores my soul. Imagine the kind of peace and rest, the kind of beauty and grandeur that is so awesome. Your soul is being restored. That's what I want. <laughs> That's the kind of vacation I'm after. And that is the picture that the psalmist paints here. It's beauty and grandeur, but it's, but it's also gentle. It's restful. It's peaceful. And this is an image, frankly, that so many billions of people are after and so few have tasted and experienced. Isn't that true? So few. It's an image that's quite set apart from the relentless striving that so many of us find ourselves in. The hamster wheel, the treadmill, the, 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 the endless chain of events that busy our schedule, right? It's the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's a picture that's the opposite of all of our self-improvement projects that are just striving after the wind, like the, like the author of Ecclesiastes says, to make ourselves better versions of ourselves. That, this is not that. It's something else. It's rest and peace, the kind that even restores a soul. In San Francisco, uh, there's a startup, not surprisingly, there are lots of them there. There's a startup that, that, that calls itself Ritual Design Lab, and what they've done is, uh, according to their own uh, founding documents, their own website, they say, you know, there are a lot of people out there, particularly young people, who are more and more and more disconnected from their own histories and from, from belief systems and from religions, and they don't have meaningful rituals in their life. Right? I think Ritual Design Lab is right. That's, that's probably true. And so they've identified this gap. Like, people want meaningful ritual in their life. And so Ritual Design Lab tries to design rituals for people. <laughs> it's such a weird idea. So uh, they design rituals for people, but unlike historic or religious rituals, rites of passage and communal rites, no, 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 these rites are designed to be disposable, to be quick, to be easy. Uh, they just set up uh, recently on Market Street in San Francisco, a busy street if you guys have been there. On Market Street, they set up a wish ritual where they invited people in and they built kind of a, a, a pretty booth that they called a Zen door. And on the inside of it, there were tags and a Sharpie. And you could, you could write your wish on a tag and attach it to these ribbons in the wish ritual room, right? Now, now listen, a lot of these tags... Um, were, were a little bit superficial, sounded like something somebody wrote in your middle school yearbook, but then most of them, most of them were getting at something profound. I, I'm, I wanna read some of them to you. I wanna read some of them to you. One, one person said, I wish the world would just slow down a bit more. Have you ever felt that? Another person said, I wish that people were kind and compassionate to me. Another person said, I wish I had all good thoughts. 
Wouldn't that be nice? Another person said, I wish that I could find direction. I wish for strength. And finally, one person said simply, I wish for peace in my heart. That is profound. That is profound. What are these people getting at? What is it that they desire? They desire verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 23. They desire something transcendent. They desire a steady hand at the wheel, the kind of guidance that leads to beauty. Do you see? They're after something from God, something, something that no wish ritual on Market Street can provide. The tag, the sharpie, the ribbon, the room, the zendor, it cannot hear their wishes, and it cannot respond. You know, externalizing our needs is not the same as meeting them. Let me say that again. Externalizing our needs is not the same as meeting them. Writing your grocery list is not the same as stocking the refrigerator, is it? We need something else. We need the good shepherd. We need his guidance, the kind of guidance that leads to beauty. That's what I'm after. That, I think, is what you're after. We all want, we all need the kind of guidance that leads to beauty. Steady guidance, still waters, green pastures, restored soul, or like the person that wrote in the wish ritual, peace in my heart. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture. Perhaps you're someone who is a a believing Christian, you know God, and perhaps you've you've experienced this. It's It's not a steady state of life, but perhaps you've tasted of this kind of this kind of soul restoration from God, right? Too many of us have never experienced this. The psalm doesn't stop at guidance that leads to beauty. It continues in verse 4. What does verse 4 say? Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verses 2 and 3 speak of the still waters and green pastures under the shepherd's guidance. Verse 4 introduces something else altogether. Verse 4 speaks of the valley of death's shadow under the shepherd's protection. Did you see that? When, When the psalmist says, rod and staff, they comfort me, the shepherd's walking stick had two sides. One was a weapon. <laughs> it was a rod. It was used to defend, to fend off robbers and, 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 and wild animals and lions to, to protect his sheep. And the other side was what? It was a hook. For what? To guide his sheep, to direct them away from danger. The rod and the staff, they comfort the sheep, knowing that they are there. When my wife and I went to that beach resort, um, we had we had not been told all of the details. We were told about the white sand and the pristine water. We were not told about the spiders and the outhouses, right? Listen, Christianity 
This is one of the most refreshing things for me personally and for Christians throughout the ages. One of the most refreshing things about Christianity it is, is that it is not simply marketing copy. Right here, even in a psalm about the goodness of the guidance of God, we have the darkest valley. Take note of that. Christianity is honest. It tells it like it is. It's, it's deeply in touch with reality. It's not pretending. It's not, it's not thinking that, that a mere ritual will take everything away. It is, it is telling it like it is what we actually experience. And frankly, part of life is dark. I love this about Christianity. It is not trying to cheat me or sell me something. It is telling me what is real. The psalmist says he enters the dark valley. Now listen, tragically, there are some forms of Christian, Christian marketing or teaching that, that try to do away with the dark bits, with sin and corrupted human nature and uh, profound spiritual conflict. But the Bible doesn't do that. The, the actual word of God does not do away with this. It, it just, it tells it like it is. Jesus himself what did he tell his disciples? On the one hand, he said, following me is like getting a treasure that's worth more than anything else. It's like a pearl of great price. It's like something that is so valuable, you would gladly sell everything else to get it because that thing is infinitely more valuable, right? That's the green pastures. But Jesus also tells his disciples what? Following me can feel like taking up your cross. Jesus is using metaphors just like the psalmist is using metaphors. He's telling it like it is. There are good parts of following Jesus and there are very, very difficult parts of following Jesus in this life. It just is. Christianity is honest with us. It tells us the truth. There are dark valleys they're real. Uh, frankly, this is the flip side. The verses four and five are the flip side of the wish ritual in San Francisco. If, if everyone, if hundreds or thousands of people are writing their wishes on tags for things like peace, then what does that tell us except that they don't yet have peace? Right? They're in a valley. There are too many uh, dark places in life for me to try to mention today in one teaching. I mean, there just are too many. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm going to mention three. But, but my disclaimer is, I, I, I know that some of you in this room are experiencing, have experienced profound difficulty or even, even trauma in your life. I can't mention all of it, but let me give three common darkest valleys that we experience. One is the valley of the ordinary. I mean, that sounds strange, but I think this is real. When I first moved, with my wife and I first moved to Mexico City, we moved there to be missionaries. We moved there to help start a new church. And at the time, I had studied ministry in, in, as an undergrad, and I had this very high, heroic view of missions, right? Missionaries were heroes in my mind. And in, in a sense, that's, there's, there's part of that that's true. And then I went to Mexico City, and I lived in the middle of this most densely populated place, and every day didn't feel very heroic. It just felt kind of ordinary. It was a bit of a grind. I lived in obscurity. Nobody was writing about me. 
Now, I don't think this experience, the Valley of the Ordinary, is limited to missions. I think many of us, perhaps you are one of these people, you've had a dream, you've had an ambition, a good one, and then, and then you graduate, or then you land the job, or then you find the relationship, whatever it is, you get it, and then the ordinary sets in. Do you know what I mean? It, it's a good thing, but it's also just life. There's a bit of a grind to it. It's just every day. Your wife is awesome, but she also doesn't put the cap on the toothpaste. Right? There's, there's, there's a grind to life, and that's okay. There's a valley of the ordinary. The, even achieving sometimes our deepest ambitions and dreams cannot fulfill what we most need. That's what the valley of the ordinary tells us. There, there's another valley, valley of dark, of darkness, of waiting. Some of you immediately, in your hearts, nodded when I said waiting. Man, dar waiting feels dark and confusing. Sometimes waiting lasts I'm hesitant because I don't want to be despairing for those of you who are waiting. Sometimes waiting lasts a lifetime. The Bible is honest. I want to be honest too. Sometimes waiting lasts a lifetime. Waiting for something we deeply desire. Solomon, who was the son of King David, who wrote this psalm. Solomon also wrote some of our Bible. In the Proverbs, he wrote a passage about waiting. Verse Chapter 13, verse 12, Solomon said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You know what that is? That is Solomon being honest about the valley of waiting. Waiting is hard. There's a valley of loss. Frankly, we're in a pretty young church. Uh, many of us have not yet experienced profound loss. Some of us have. Uh, my wife and I, 12, 13 years ago, something like that, uh, had a, we lost a baby, um, had a miscarriage. It was tragic. It was extremely difficult for me at the time, more so for my wife. And I would just was so uh, distraught. And an, an older friend of mine came to me and, and prayed with me and sat with me and just was quiet with me. And then he said something it was really good. He said, Luke, you know, one of the reasons that this loss is so hard is just because you haven't experienced loss before. I love those kind of friends. That's a hard thing to tell somebody. And it was good for me to hear. There is a reality that in life, in this world, there will be valleys of loss. It just is. And I hadn't experienced the loss like that before, and it was especially difficult. Valleys of ordinary, valleys of waiting, valleys of loss. Now listen, the psalmist doesn't stop there. What does he say? Incredibly, the psalmist is comforted. How can this be? How can the psalmist be comforted? What does he say? Verse 4, he continues, for you are with me. Please, don't miss this. In verse 4, you get verses 1 through 3. 
And the psalmist talks about God. Did you see that? The psalmist is, is extolling about who God is so that other people may hear. And then in verse 4, he's in the darkest valley. And what does he do? The pronoun changes from him to you. In the darkest valley, he turns to God and he says, you are with me. It's stunning. This God who is, who is deeply, wholly committed to his people. This is unlike anything else out there. This isn't some future hope only. It is that too. It is the God who is here, the God who lowers himself, the one true God, the God of the Bible, who enters into the valley and walks beside his people. So the psalmist, in darkness and in confusion, can say, God, this is dark. Lord, I don't understand. I don't know what to do next, but you're with me. You're with me. This message of Christianity is unlike anything else out there. It's not merely someday, someday out there, God will take care of you. It's not God will scoop you out of the valley. It is God is with you in the valley. And it is beautiful. The psalmist looks to God, and he says, you, you are with me. This is perhaps the most startling point of the whole psalm, the God who winters dark valley. The shepherd's rod and staff protect and guide. And then the psalmist shifts the metaphor about God. Verse 5, what does it say? You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Life can be green and, and, and abundant with God. Life can be dark and, and difficult under God's guidance too. God is, is the good shepherd who protects and guides, and God, here, verse 5, is the generous host. God as host. God thinking of, of his people as the honored guest. And this is all the more astonishing because it's happening in the valley, <laughs> in the presence of enemies. This is, this is exactly, if you think about it, on the one hand, this seems inside out, and on the other hand, when is God's provision more apparent than in a moment of desperate darkness? This is when the table is set. This is when his provision becomes apparent and visible. You're like, yes, I see, God. I, I don't know how to go through with this. I don't know all the next steps, but I can see that you're here and that you're providing. God's provision is generous. It's, it's, it's like a host who's good at hosting. Do you know that person? The host who, who has everything prepared, who has, who has considered, who has sent the email ahead of time asking about food allergies, that host. He's a generous host. The, the psalmist cites the ancient practice of when you invite an honored guest into your home, you anoint their head with oil. That is God doing it to his people. It's like the action that we should be doing to him. 
He anoints his, his guest's head with oil. There is so much at this table that the cup is overflowing. Consider for a moment Jesus' very first miracle. It was the miracle of a host. He made wine for a wedding party. Consider Jesus' work right now. He is preparing a place for us. It's the role of host. His abundance, his generosity is, is astonishing. Betsy Childs Howard, she used to work at Beeson Divinity School. She wrote, after time of the, a valley of waiting, she wrote this, and it's very insightful. She says, I began to see waiting was a kind of school from God, but the goal of this school was not that I should learn my lesson so that I don't have to wait anymore. God wants me to learn how to wait so that I can wait well, even if my waiting continues for the rest of my life. God wanted something even better for me. Rather than simply end my waiting, he wanted to bless my waiting. This is the kind of language that can only come from someone who has been served at the banqueting table by God in the valley of darkness. She could only get there in the valley. Do you see? Tabidi Abenweel, he's a pastor in the D.C. area, and he's also, like, like so many of us, have, has experienced dark valleys. He says, he put it this way, he said, I began to see that a no from God, listen to this, I began to see that a no from God does more for my good than a yes to all my dreams. That kind of insight only comes from the host <laughs> guiding his, his people through darkness. Do you see? The psalmist paints a picture that is so much more than merely the afterlife. It is God entering into our real life. It is guidance that leads to beauty. It is guidance that is sufficient for darkness. Now, um, I can imagine uh, there are some of us in the room that might be kind of like me. You're like, this is a picture. Sounds like something that I want. Sounds like that's what I'm after. But at the same time, maybe you're like me. You're like, but what do I do now? I, have, I actually have this real thing that I'm praying and talking to God about, and I need a decision. <laughs> How do I seek guidance, right? I, I want to speak quickly, briefly to you. I got three points about practical points about God's guidance. First, Psalm 23, don't forget that Psalm 23 is a picture of guidance for the person who believes in God. This is a psalm of God's people. In other words, it's not a psalm for the enemies. Do you remember the enemies are also mentioned in this psalm? Not everyone experiences guidance that leads to beauty and guidance that sustains in times of darkness. Only the person who believes in God. Now, it could sound harsh, um, that kind of exclusive claim, but it is a claim of the Bible over and over again. The kind of guidance that God provides is for the kind of person who trusts him. 
who believes in him. There's good news, though. We learned that Jesus died for us even while we were still enemies, right? So they're enemies mentioned in the psalm, but they can be drawn also into God's guidance. If you are curious, if you are curious, if you are not, whether or not you are a Christian, maybe some of you secretly are. If you're curious if, whether or not you're a Christian, there's a test uh, by a simple little test from Dick Lucas, who is a pastor. He said, does it bother you to be called a stupid sheep in the presence of God? If you are offended at being a sheep, a stupid sheep that can't find his own way, then chances are you are not yet a Christian. If, however, that rings true to you and you think, yes, I need help, I am prone to wander, there's a good chance you are a Christian. Psalm 23 is for the believing Christian. It's a picture of what the believing Christian can experience in God. Point two, practical guidance. Uh, Guidance is not always supernatural. Most of the time, in fact, it is by natural means. In other words, guidance from God, he most often employs natural means. You know, if you consider the saints, the great saints of the Bible, what do we have? We've got, uh, let's think of some of the most famous ones, Moses and Paul and Esther and Ruth and uh, even the most famous ones, we have, what, 30 pages sometimes on. What does that tell us? That we're getting these, these glimpses of God's supernatural interaction with them, but that there are thousands of other pages where his guidance just looked natural. So if, if you are a Christian out there that's waiting for the supernatural intervention of God about a decision, there's a good chance that he's using natural means to direct you that frankly, he wants you to wrestle through the difficult work of making a decision. Uh, John Ortberg is a pastor. He talks about this. He says, so often when we pray to God for guidance, what we actually want is to be rescued from the difficulty of owning a decision. God uses natural means. Psalm 23 uh, is is a picture of guidance for the person who believes in God too. God's guidance is often natural. And point three, uh, God has a moral plan, not always a very specific action plan. God is more concerned about who you are than where you live. He's more concerned by the kind of employee you are than where you work. God is more concerned with the kind of spouse you are than whether or not you get married. Do you you see what I mean? He's more concerned with, with your being He's more concerned with you as a business person practicing good, honest, full of integrity business than he is whether or not you practice business in Chicago or Minneapolis. He has a moral plan for you that is much more profound than a specific action list, bullet list. God's guidance. He's interested in setting you, like the psalm says, on paths of righteousness. Four metaphors, two for God and two for life. God is our shepherd, God is our host. Life can be good, life can be bad, but he provides the guidance that leads to beauty and he provides the guidance that sustains in darkness. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are prone 
to simplistic views of life. I confess that I, I am either prone to an overly naive view of life's happiness or an overly cynical view of life's darkness. Thank you, thank you that your good word paints a picture for us of both. So that I neither have to be jaded nor do I have to be fake and plastic. I can be real in you. Thank you for your perfect gui guidance. Lord, I, there's somebody right here today, now, who thinks, is this, if it feels like this psalm and this day was written for me, would you be close and near to that person in this moment? Would you draw them into trust of who you are, of what you've done on their behalf? Amen.